You're listening to The Human Factor from Inc. Magazine. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. Our guest today is an extraordinary entrepreneur, leader, and a true groundbreaker, figuratively and literally. Daryl McKissick is the founder, chairwoman, and CEO of McKissick & McKissick, a $30 million architecture, engineering, and construction company that manages over $15 billion in projects nationwide and has had a hand in the design, construction, and or rehabilitation of some of the nation's most notable landmarks, including the National Museum of African-American History and Culture on the National Mall, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, the Lincoln and Jefferson Memorials, the U.S. Treasury Building, the George H.W. Bush Library, and O'Hare Airport in Chicago, just to name a few. On top of all that, she is a Black woman in an industry overwhelmingly led by white men the heir to a family tradition of black architects and builders that goes back to the 18th century. And she's also one of the most determined and inspiring people I've ever had on the show. And she's also, I, I hasten to add, the winner of one of Inc.'s 2020 Best in Business Awards given to founders who have had a superlative effect on their industry, their community, or society as a whole. Daryl, you check all those boxes. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here today. <laughs> um, McKissick and McKissick is a company that you started, but the building trades run in your family for a long, long time. Um, and it started with a man that we now know as Moses McKissick, uh, who came to this country against his will from Ghana in 1790 and started the family tradition of, um, of building. Tell us about Moses and, and how this tradition passed down from him to your father, William, and um, who was his great-grandson. Okay, so my great-great-grandfather, Moses, was a slave, and he came here in 1790. Um, and he was a slave to one of the large contractors um, in the United States uh, named McKissick. And, of course, he was given that name. Um, he was taught the trade of... Um, to be a carpenter and um, a master builder. And he also brought from his country how to build, how to make bricks. And so um, he was able to buy his freedom by actually selling bricks um, during his lifetime. But he passed a trade of building down to my great grandfather who also became a master carpenter. And um, he passed a trade of construction to my grandfather and um, my great uncle. And they started our family business in Tennessee in 1905, um, making us the oldest African-American architectural firm in the country. Um, and that business was passed to my father <laughs> and he had three girls and <laughs> he used to take us to school. And, um, and I mean, and take us to work with him on a Saturdays. And so from the time we were six years old, uh, we've been drawing drawings. He would prop us up on his drawing boards and um, we would just draw during the day. Uh, and that's been our life. <laughs> well, that is an incredible tradition. But did you ever like have an urge to to sort of branch out and become, you know, a, an actor, a, an accountant or just something not in the construction trades? 
really, I've just always really liked it. Um, I love the um, seeing drawings turn into real buildings, um, coming to life. When then, when I mean coming to life, is people in them and actually using them. Uh, and um, it's always just been in my blood. Now I used to always try to <laughs> play with him if I didn't get my way on certain things, and I would say, "I think I'm gonna be a doctor." <laughs> <laughs> but I always liked the math and sciences. And so, you know, <laughs> I think this is just what I was born to do. I love my dog every day. And I have to apologize right now for my dog. <clears throat> there must be someone at the door, right? I, I've had that myself. Probably his dog walker. And so he gets excited. Oh, oh, wow. This is life in a Zoom pandemic. <laughs> I apologize. Oh, it's so incredibly authentic. I'm actually um, glad to be here today. I got stuck in an elevator this morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, you did. But so what floor do you live on? The 32nd floor. Yeah, that would have been a long walk. Yeah, uh, but that's just yeah, you even sure I made it to your show. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Let's go back. So we, we've been through the storied history of your family uh, and a, an incredible tradition that is handed down through so many generations. But then you started your own firm and you did it. Well, you weren't exactly flush with venture capital money. What, what gave you the, what gave you the, the courage, the impetus to do that? Um, I just had this burning passion on the inside that I just wanted to try something on my own. And I didn't know if it would make it or not. Um, but I just felt like I just wanted my own little red wagon that I could push to the right, push to the left, run off a cliff. <laughs> okay. If, I, if it just so happens. It was kind of an experiment, but also there was a lot of, of, of push behind it, that inertia from inside that was just saying, this is what you need to do. And um, it worked out. <laughs> uh, so it did. Yeah, so it did. Yeah, I think some people are just born to be entrepreneurs. There's a, always a question that we that is uh, much debated at Inc. 5000 conferences is, can entrepreneurs be trained or are they born? I would say that you were one of the ones who was born. Yeah, I think I was born to be an entrepreneur. I was born to be in this kind of business. I was born to take no, stare down a barrel of no and make it a yes. <laughs> you talked about not having um, any venture capital. Shoot, I couldn't even get a bank. <laughs> and I remember I had $3,000. A friend asked to borrow two and I gave him two. And then I had a thousand dollars, and that's literally what is on my incorporation papers in my stock, a thousand dollars. And you know, I figured during that time it was in the you know the 1990s when the construction industry was really doing bad. It was a very low time in Washington. We only had one building going up on 17th and K, and everybody in the industry would go and look at that building. <laughs> Say, oh, one day we'll have another building like this. But I figure in the big companies like SOM, they were 
they were reducing staff. I mean, they were, they went from probably, they probably reduced their staff 50 to 70%. And I know big businesses that went out of business. And I just said to myself, well, I mean, I'm already starting at the ground floor. Maybe I'm in the basement. There is nowhere else for me to go but up. <laughs> so. A lot of great companies get started in recessions uh, because the founders have guts or or don't know what they're getting into or some combination of the above. And out of that, as the economy recovers, they actually uh, get kind of a tailwind. How did you land your first customer? Um, well, that's an interesting story. So I went to one of our universities uh -huh. um, and because I had worked at Howard University. I was the president's executive assistant and I ran all the facilities there. So I felt like I had a connection with universities. So I said, well, let me start there. Um, I, I literally put together a list of 300 people across all industries that I needed to meet and um, tell them that I was going into business. Um, and actually, by the time I got through the first 150, I had so much work, I never got to the other 150. But my first project, <laughs> I went to a presentation. The table was all men. And um, I had my little flywheel presentation people that probably don't remember this, the young people on, the, on this viewing this tape. But <laughs> I, uh, when I finished the presentation, the head guy looked at me and he said, little lady, there is nothing you can do for us. And I looked at him and I grabbed his hand and I looked him in the eye and I said, thank you. This has been so wonderful. And I am looking forward to working with you. I just can't wait till I'm working with you and I appreciate your time. <laughs> and I left there and I walked around that campus for two hours and I talked about which building I was going to be working on. And about six months later, one of the guys sitting around the table called me and he said, you know, you were so gracious in how you were treated that day. And he said, I'm the boss now. That guy was nasty and he was like promoted out. And he said, I have a small job for you. Can you come over here and let's talk about it? And that was my first job. Wow. Wow. Um, <laughs> what a great story. Um, Talk about entrepreneurial resilience and uh, and kind of entrepreneurial jujitsu, turning that kind of blow into something positive. <laughs> Pretty nice. Well, yeah. So that was it. that was the beginning. Go, go ahead. What was the big break? Oh, my big break! I would say it was Treasury. Um, Tell us. I had the opportunity to meet Secretary Rubin under the Clinton administration mm -hmm. at a reception. And so, um, you know, I told him, I said, you know, it would just be so great if I could do some work with Treasury. And so he introduced me to the head of procurement at Treasury. And so at, when I met the guy, I went to go meet him. And then after that, every two weeks, I would go to his office and ask him for work. And during those days, you know, you didn't have to go through all the security to get through a government building and all of that. 
you know, this is prior, you know, September 11th and all of that. So I was able to just walk into the treasury building and I would walk in every two weeks. And I did that for two years, Eric. Finally, one day I walked in and he said, I am so tired of seeing you. He said, somebody in here, give her some work. <laughs> so they gave me a small job to do some design reviews on um, an electoral distribution system that they were putting in. And I was so happy. Um, so that night I got home around 1030 at night and the phone rang and this guy says, can I speak to Mr. McKissick? And I said, he's dead. And I started <laughs> laughing on the telephone. <laughs> and I said, okay, who is this playing jokes on me today? What other joke do you have to tell me? And they said, well, um, this is the secret service. I said, oh yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they said, no, lady, this is a secret service. I said, mm-hmm. Well, I'd had a couple of glasses of wine because I was celebrating, you know, my new contract. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I'm laughing on the phone. And he says, lady, the treasury building is on fire. I said, it is not on fire. I just left downtown and I didn't see any smoke. So he said, well, why don't you turn on your television? So I turned on the TV. There was a treasury building going up in smoke. And now... I'm backpedaling because I'm scared because I'm talking to the Secret Service. Yes. Okay, this really is the Secret Service. How can I serve my country? <laughs> and so he said, um, well, we're looking for Daryl McKissick and we need him to get down here right away. <laughs> and I said, that's me. So I ran down there. The fire department was literally coming out of the building and they had yellow tape. And I said, can I borrow the yellow tape? And they let me have it. And so I taped off Treasury and they're telling because I wanted to keep my competitors out. <laughs> and so uh, the head of procurement met me there. My car's parked out front. We're on a laptop computer on my hood. And he says, OK, I got to get back in this building. Oh, I'm sorry. What happened was the Treasury building was putting on a new roof. They used to have, well, GSA pretty much runs their contracts. The roofer had a blowtorch to start the roof on fire. So now they've got this huge fire. The secretary's cash room is a mess. The library, all of this was under the, under the roof that was burning. So it's all messed up. And so the secretary said, I don't want GSA to touch my building. Is there anybody that has a contract directly with Treasury? And I was the only person. <laughs> so that's why they called me. Uh -huh. and, uh, so anyway, so I ended up getting a contract to, to get them back stable again in the building. But then as I was walking through the building, I realized there was a lot of things that weren't operating efficiently and they were not even as the Treasury Department operating efficiently because of how their space was laid out. So I put together a whole plan to renovate the building. And the secretary said, OK, so for 12 years, I was doing a major renovation and it started at two hundred million dollars. <laughs> So that was a major break and that hit the newspapers and 
you know, ENR and, and um, really turned us around because up to that point, it was kind of funny because, you know, I wasn't really into accounting and all that kind of stuff. But I walked in one day and my accountant, this is right before Treasury happened, <laughs> my accountant said, I have some news. I think you should sit down. I said, okay. So I sat down. She says, I think we're insolvent. And I looked at her, kind of a blank stare. And I said, hmm, I don't know what that means, but I'm not it. It doesn't sound good. So I know I'm not it. So I walked out and I forgot about it. <laughs> and after this, we went from the red to the black, black, black. And it's just been going ever since then. And of course, now I know what insolvency means. Yeah, well. It's not a good thing. <laughs> Gerald, that, I've, I've heard some entrepreneurial near-death amazing save stories, but that's got to be the best. That is, <laughs> that is amazing. And it took burning down the treasury to do it. Um, I would say that that's a combination. Uh, that's being in the right place at the right time, enabled by incredible persistence and ability to turn many, many no's into a yes. There is no greater entrepreneurial gift than that. <laughs> now, one of the one of the many projects of McKissick and McKissick is is um, as I've heard it described, the largest K through twelve construction management program in the country. And the inspiration for you to take that on is another story and a very telling story about the mission of your company. Yeah. Um, so it was probably about now about 15 years ago or maybe a little longer and i was asked to uh speak on a panel in one of the high schools in dc and so i went and you know the school was in really bad shape but before i went on the panel discussion i said well let me run to the bathroom when i went in the bathroom i was just completely shocked at the conditions of this bathroom and, and i you know there were um, toilets off the wall. There was, you know, no hanging panels in places. There were no sinks and it was dim. The mirrors were really gloomy. And so I'm just thinking like, you know, we were building prisons at that time, um, which we're not doing now, but we were then. And, and um, I just said, you know, how can we expect our women to, to be true women um, and at the time, there was this big saying about yo girls. And I'm like, no wonder they're yo girls, because if they're in these conditions all the time, I mean, what do, what do we expect? And right then and there, I thought about our mission. Um, you know, prior to that, our mission really, I just sort of borrowed my ancestor's mission, <laughs> which was to be trustworthy partners with your clients, you know, always to under promise and over deliver you know, those kind of things. But I realized that our mission needed to tap into universal good for all of mankind. It needed to be much deeper and go past bricks and mortar and business, mm -hmm. but it needed to enhance people's lives. So our mission became um, to enhance people's lives through the design and construction industry. Um, and, you know, eventually, probably a few years later, DC, um, was to, was able to 
get $5 billion to change our schools. And we were, we won the contract to run that. And it's just grown since then. So we have the largest urban practice. Um, and so that's, you know, in the urban areas mm-hmm. um, with K through 12. And, you know, we, we feel like we have a real mission with yeah. these kids. Yeah. I want to talk about your personal sense of mission too. And um, as a, as a black woman in a predominantly white male field, you've you've faced both racism and gender bias. The 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 that procurement officer or secret service person asking for Mr. McKissick is just kind of a it's not surprising. And what what's that been like personally? How how do you handle it? Um, you know, it's painful sometimes. But it makes me better in other times because I feel like, you know, in our company, we have to exceed expectations and um, we really have to strive for excellence and not just for ourselves, but it's for the, the minority and women firms that are coming behind us as well, because we don't get a second chance. You know, large companies, they can have a default they can do the client wrong. They can overcharge the client, but it's a safe choice. A client will say, I got this really hard job. And if I pick this majority company over here, they can't say I did the wrong thing. You know what I mean? Even if they mess up. Right. Now, if they pick me and I'm my company, and we're probably, I'm not gonna say we're always better, but we're equal to and better in many cases. Um, you know, then, but if something goes wrong, we have to make sure it's fixed. We cannot get a default letter. I don't have any default letters. I've never been fired on a project. I can't let that happen because if that happened, that would be it for my reputation and all the people coming behind me. Um, you know, and unfortunately, no matter how many memorials, monuments, and presidential libraries I have done, I am still under a different scrutiny than my majority counterparts. And I'm always asked, but can you really do it? You know? Mm. Mm. <laughs> right. That, uh, that's confronting and, and the burden of, uh, of knowing that anything that goes wrong might reflect on the people behind you is a, that's a heavy burden. Tell me about the, about the pandemic and how it's affected your business. Has it been, has it been bad for it? Did it stop construction? Did it enable new, new opportunities for you? So the pandemic, you know, of course has been a challenge for everybody, just for the mere numbers of Americans that have lost their lives and the illness and, you know, people in the hospital. So that's already a burden. You know, I feel on everybody. Um, But as a company, you know, I think we stopped and slowed down just to go faster, (laughs) but we did stop and slow down. And um, for me, instead of trying to sell the company externally and trying to, you know, have dinner and meet with my clients and all this kind of stuff and meet new clients out there externally, 
and also doing um, inspirational speaking to other corporations, I took all of that energy and I turned it inward. And I started um, selling my company internally. So I started spending more time with my staff and being an inspiration to my staff because I felt like I was responsible in some kind of way. You know, they were, they were still getting paid because by the way, you asked me about construction. Construction was considered essential. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> our work continued, but there was a lot of fear and anxiety yes. in my staff. I mean, because it was with everybody, but I felt responsible for them. And so I started town hall sessions every two weeks to just talk about relevant events, what was going on, try to alleviate some fear um, and turn and start talking to them about my inspirational speeches on purpose and how, you know, if we, we have a lot to be grateful for. And because we're grateful, we can be hopeful in this situation where we cannot see the end of the tunnel. I mean, if you think about last March, yeah. I had COVID and I was sick <laughs> when we decided to go virtual and everything shut down. I was dealing with having COVID myself, but I did not tell anybody. I got up every day and I put my makeup on and I got on the screen <laughs> and I act like I was, had not been up all night. But, you know, it's a very bad disease and it makes you stay up all night. But I felt like I had to inspire and talk to these people. And so that's what I did. And I'm still doing it today. We um, completely enhanced our culture that way. Uh, we believe in a humble, hungry and smart environment. Um, we believe that we want healthy people to show up to work every day because that makes a healthy team, which makes a healthy department and a healthy company and a healthy community. Right. And so I felt as the more I could inspire my staff, the more they could inspire the people around them, their families, their communities, and whatever. And wow. so that's what COVID has been for me. It's been a, a really, it's been really rewarding though, I'd have to say in that regard. Yes, I've lost some people that were close and dear to me to the disease. Um, but the time that I've had with my staff and the growth that we've had and, and personal growth with people, it's been great. Um, you're fully recovered and, and fine now, I hope. Oh yeah. I, um, it was three weeks. Um, it took me oh my really God. six weeks to get back to normal. And, um, and I was all alone because I just was, I came to Miami for a, an event where I thought I got it and then I had to stay here. I couldn't go anywhere. So, um, but it was, I made it, <laughs> I think. And what helped me make it is that I felt like I had to get up every day and do something for my staff. I think that that is an inflection point in many entrepreneurs' journey when they pass the point where they see themselves as a builder or a, you know, depending on their business, a, a, a software engineer or a salesperson or the things that got them launched and realize that they're the leader of a company and that their job is to watch out for all those souls who work for them. And that is 
Um, difficult for many people who really kind of want to get their hands dirty in that company, but it is an essential part of the evolution of a, of a leader. Um, well, uh, lucky for your, for your company that you handled that so gracefully, Daryl. Can I ask you, um, what would you say is your kind of special superpower as a boss? God, <laughs> I wake up every morning and I pray. Uh -huh. and I meditate over what I should, what are the important things for me to do that day. Of course, I always have a list of things <laughs> to do, but I'm never going to finish that list. I'm <laughs> never going to finish that list. <laughs> so I ask, what are the important things to do today? And what what am, what should I do to inspire others today? And so um, that that is my morning, and I'm guided by that. So my day may change. It may be, you know, you know, I gotta do this because I've got to talk to these people today. Um, every one of my town halls, I, I personally write a message for my staff. Um, I was meeting with my leadership every single day during COVID. Now we've yeah. gone to three days a week, but every morning at nine, I was there um, talking to them. So I think it's my deep faith that um, that gets me through and, and tells me I can do anything. And as long as I'm on my purpose and my destiny, you know, it's for me. No one else can take that away from me. No one can define me. I define myself, my destiny defines me, my past and my future, that defines me. No one can say you're black and you're female and you can't do this and you can't do that. I don't even hear it yeah. <laughs> because, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people project their fears, their anxieties on you. And if you look a little bit different, it's easier for them to do it. And I've been, you know, I've seen it my entire life from a child. So I just keep going on my path, <laughs> my purpose, and it's working out. And I pray that everybody finds their purpose in life and that they try to stay on it. And the best thing is if you're not on it, one day you'll get back on it and it'll correct itself and you would not have missed anything because <laughs> you're going to end up where you're supposed to be. So tell me. What is your destiny? <laughs> um, well, I think, like I always say, I've been to several promised lands. And what I mean by that is that, um, like, I started this company as a little <clears throat> red wagon. Yeah. And then now, because of all the cities we were in, my, um, my senior staff used to say, well, we think you strap some engines on here and added some wings to this little wagon. <laughs> so, so, um, so I feel like I am where I want to be. There's a lot of, a lot more things I think that McKissick can do um, in the country and maybe globally. We're not looking outside of the country right now. We have done some work out of the country. Um, just to enhance people's lives with our music, with our um, projects. I mean, our landmark projects, um, yeah. they have been, I would say they've changed the paradigm of how people think. 
um, you know, they they talk about, they help us develop our um, values as a country, some of the projects that we've worked on. And, you know, I take that stuff really seriously because, and and so I'm very honored to be able to work on any of those projects. Um, And I feel like I have a staff that is very sensitive to what those projects mean to America. And so, you know, I'm real happy with that. But we have a lot more of that to do, <laughs> um, as well as our kids. We've got a lot more schools that we need to do. We've got a lot more airports that we need to build. You know, we've got a lot of infrastructure, bridges and water and wastewater that needs to be, you know, upgraded uh, for where we are today. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we want to be a part of all of that. So we've got a lot to do. <laughs> That's my destiny. That's... Along with raising my child and getting her out of college. <laughs> <laughs> She's in high school. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. Um, you mentioned right at the top of the show, your mentor. Who is that? And, and, and if not your mentor, who's the person who's inspired you most? So I have several mentors, um, but my mother has been a big inspiration to me because she took over the business after my father had a stroke. And um, she was a school teacher with a degree in psychology. (laughs) She said, I could only spell architecture. (laughs) (laughs) But um, to see her take over the company and and run the company for my father, um, you know, that was very inspirational to me. And then I have, you know, mentors around the country that um, have all run major businesses. One helps me on work-life balance with my child. Another one is on my board. She helps me with, you know, corporations and how to deal with them and all that kind of stuff. Um, Another one kind of helps me in my appearance. <laughs> she she could have been a model, but she has a huge business. <laughs> um, but she's also great. Um, you know, one of them helps me on philanthropy. She gets me on boards, um, art boards, and, you know, women boards and all kinds of things. And so they all are just like a great I can pick from all of them and come out with something great. And, you know, you asked about destiny. Destiny is something you have to be in tune with every day. And it changes. You may not know, you know, some days you don't know if you're on it or not. But having these great people around you, you know, information and where you should be comes from a lot of different different avenues. And, um, and so I just keep myself open. That's the main thing. I keep myself open. We are free. We're supposed to be free beings, free mind, free thinking. (laughs) So we're open um, to all of these opportunities. And and that's how I walk every day. Yeah, that's great. Um, Let me ask you a question, Daryl, in parting that that I ask all the entrepreneurs on the show is um, entrepreneurship is a, is a, rocky road um and uh you know you you started with you know a a lot of headwinds that were socially imposed on you and yet you succeeded beyond almost um anyone's wildest dreams why looking back on it why 
were you one of the ones who made it? Um, well, I still would go back to destiny, but uh, being persistent, I just never give up. You know, I have some clients that say, Daryl, <laughs> I know why you're so successful. Because you <laughs> something. <laughs> you are not giving up. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, I've been knocked down. I've lost money. You know, I have been disappointed. I've gotten unfavorable verdicts, you know, all of that. Um, but, you know, you just have to keep going. It's a breakthrough. It allows you to sit down and say, okay, how can I do this better? And how can I be grateful? Because first of all, you cannot get angry. That's just wasted energy to me. You know, I like to ball that up in great energy and say, okay, how can I make this better? And if it's for me, I'm going to get it. If it's not for me, I'm not going to get it. And I just go on to the next one and let the universe handle it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That is a fantastic attitude. Kind of a great way to, to leave this show is with um, that exhortation from Churchill um, about, about what makes people successful. And it is that you never, 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 never never give up that's well, the Darren West story during, during COVID one of the things we started with in my second town hall was Churchill who said never let a good crisis go to waste yeah. uh -huh. and we decided that everybody coming out of COVID at McKissick was going to be better and something fantastic and I definitely decided that I mean you know it's like what are you going to do during this time to be better all right. What a great place to leave it. Daryl McKissick, thank you so much for being on the show. Bye, Daryl. Bye. That's all for this episode of The Human Factor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode. The Human Factor is produced by Joshua Christensen with help from Blake Odom.